Hi and hello, watch fans, and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show, one of our famous Q&A sessions, but today with a little twist. For the first time ever since our foundation in 2022, which has some relevance now, because of course we're in 2024, we do not have Alon Ben-Joseph on the other side of the microphone today. I'm talking to our resident provocateur, David Vaucher, who has dutifully subbed in for Alon for a Q&A session to mine through the mailbag and to answer our listeners' questions. So, David, welcome to the Q&A stage for the very first time. Hey, Rob. Well, happy to be here, everyone. And you know, you say dutifully as if this is work. It's not work. I love talking watches. I love talking watches with you and Alan. So this is, uh, this is great. And actually, before we get going, Rob, I realized something. So your first letter, your first name is R. Alan is A. I'm D. So TRTS is rad. Get it? Not today, because there's not three of us, but the TRTS show is a rad show. Wow. Uh, yeah, that really appeals to the child in me. When I was younger, I used to really enjoy trying to make words out of my best friend group's names. And uh, you've done it there. We are rad. Absolutely. You're also a bit dar and ard, but yeah. Actually, if you'll allow, if you'll allow me one very uh, deep cut watch reference, since Alan is not here today, we are no rad. Oh my God. There you go. That's next level. Well done. Okay, you've justified your your place at the top table. And now, <laughs> let's see if we can justify it further because we have a, a bulging mailbag and it's time to address some of the questions that our listeners have been sending in. So we're going to start off with one from one of our most ardent followers. That's Richard Swords. I still need to get a side effect for Richard every time he sends a question. And he starts off his question with a single word, thickness. Am I the only one who doesn't like slim watches? I guess I mean ultra thin. I can understand the comfort of a slim watch if you wear a suit every day, but I generally find them somewhat boring and remind me of the 80s and the 90s in style. To me, the profile of a watch is part of its charm, and I enjoy the side view nearly as much as the front view. Don't get me wrong, I'd happily wear a Calatrava, but that's a different story. Thicker seems to be portrayed as a negative and slim as a positive. But how do you guys consider watch thickness? Best regards, Richard. P.S. No sound effects necessary. Oh, you saw it coming. I should have read that to the end. <laughs> he knows me too well. We are both full of jokes today. David, you definitely have some feelings on this. In fact, I believe you wrote an article about too thick or not too thick. I think it was called almost a year ago now. So why don't you bring us up to speed on your thoughts in that article and then we'll pick it up and have a little bit of an argument about it ourselves, I'm sure. I did, yeah. And I think we discussed it, actually. It just goes to show how fast the year goes, because uh, I, I remember, obviously, what I said, but that discussion is a little bit fuzzy. But I think that the gist of what I was saying uh, goes along with what Richard is saying, which is that there's this connotation now, which is kind of relatively recent, uh, because you know the pendulum sort of swings back and forth on these things. But the idea is that, yeah, thickness is seen as a negative, and thinness is seen as a positive. And I made the point in my article that almost as soon as any watch comes out, you can bet that the first comment is going to be, oh, it's 12 millimeters thick. It should have been 11.957 or something like that, right? I mean, I think there's always that one person that's going to say, it's too thick. And, you know, we can look at this from a couple of different points of view. Uh, I think the first thing I'm going to do is point everyone to, if you haven't seen it, uh, Mark Cho's wrist size survey. So Mark Cho... Uh, is very well known in menswear circles. He runs uh, a chain of stores called The Armory. So if you want to get tailored clothing, that's the place to go. But he's also very well known in watch circles. And one of his uh, 
more well-known contributions is a survey that he does uh, yearly, I think, on on wrist size. And of course, thickness is going to be correlated with that. So just do a search on uh, Mark Cho's um, survey and see what comes up. I think you might find some interesting data. From my point of view, you know, I think the first thing that I always say is that we should not look at thickness as uh, a design flaw. And the reason I say that is because a watch is such a, an engineered product that if it is a certain thickness, there is almost always a reason t- for that. So in the case of Omega, they get brought up a lot. Uh, in the case of uh, thick watches, they tend to be very thick. Uh, let's look at the dive watches because they have very high depth ratings. So a, a Planet Ocean is 600 meters. You're going to have some thickness associated with that. And so when people say, I don't like it, it's too thick, I think it would be more constructive to say, I don't need that much depth rating, for example, I wish it would be thinner. Now, whether Omega listens or not, that's one thing, but I think we have to consider the thickness as a consequence of some design design decisions that were made uh, upstream in the watch's construction. The second thing I'll say, Rob, before I turn it over to you for your thoughts is that, you know, a healthy market for anything, I believe, is a bell curve. So you're going to have a middle around sub-accepted value. And in this case, I'm just going to generically call it thin, you know, we'll just say thin watches is the middle of the bell curve. And a, an interesting market is going to have watches to either side of that. I, I don't think it would be a very fun market if everything looked like a Patek Calatrava, for example. Now, do I wish that every watch looked like a Planet Ocean? Uh, no, I don't. But the fact that, ex- that it exists is fun. And I think there is a target market for it. So different ways to look at it. But I, I think to Richard's point, yeah, it's not as simple as saying thick is bad, thin is good. You need to have some balance, and uh, that's what makes the hobby fun. Yeah, I totally agree with that in principle. And I think a lot of our conversation last time around when we discussed this was based on the purpose or the intended purpose of the watch. I believe that was certainly my approach to it. Like something shouldn't be thicker than it needs to be, but needn't be thin for the sake of being thin. Today, I think what I'd like to focus on more is something that I am maybe a little bit more adept at talking about in depth, and that's proportions. I also understand the frustration with this call for extra thinness, because there's only so thin at what really needs to be before itself becomes less than wearable. There is an optimum. Like you say, David, this bell curve, the peak of that is, is really somewhere between, let's say, let's say eight at the very low end of that bell curve and maybe 14 at the very upper end of that bell curve. Do you think that's a fair enough sort of range to talk about like the the, the majority of like normal watches? I, I think so. And off the top of my head, I don't have the specs in front of me, but I had an Omega chronograph of Planet Ocean, which was something like 18. And that was definitely right. thick. So I, I think I would agree with your, uh, with your range. Yeah. That's just off the top of my head because I'm thinking, I know how I feel when I look at the measurements of something. And th- the best example of this is the Octo Finissimo from Bulgari, which I believe to be a modern classic as well. Everybody that listens to this show will know by now. And Alon adores it, has one, wears it actually almost all the time, relatively speaking, for a man with so many watches. It's one of his most worn watches. I don't like the sensation of the standard model on the wrist. I prefer the steel version because it's slightly thicker than a titanium and it has a little bit more body and I believe balance to it. So yeah, I think just pushing for thinness blindly as if it's some kind of masterful technical achievement that supersedes wearability is very blinkered. And 
not what we should be driving for. I mean, ultra thin watches, I find them disgusting. Like the Richard Mill Ferrari version that's just like paper thin almost. And then all of the record setting models from Piaget, a lot of the record setting models from Bulgari. I don't really have that much time for them because they're really impressive technical feats, but they are not good everyday wearable wristwatches. They don't feel good on the wrist. They don't look good on the wrist. They go so far, they undermine their purpose of existence, in my opinion. However, I am very sensitive to watches being unnecessarily thick, perhaps more so than I am watches being unnecessarily thin. The thinnest watch that I lusted over recently was with the new Parmigiani Fleurier Tonda PF 36mm Silver Sands edition. I recently picked it when I was asked by British GQ to name my best men's watch under 20k and it was our dear friend Scarlett Baker that asked me to pick my favorite and so I snuck in just under the limit with 19 and a half thousand and I went for that watch and the only thing that made me doubt myself a little bit was is it too thin it's around 8.6 millimeters I think I thought no 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 that's okay it's got enough presence it's a good thickness for that diameter at 36 mil that's totally fine if it were 40 mil and 8.6 or even 9 I'd be, ooh, that's a bit hefty. So I liked that watch because I liked its proportions. I liked its balance. It made some sense as an object. And there are very many occasions in this industry where the thickness of a piece runs away with itself and the object no longer makes sense from an aesthetic perspective and a perspective of balance. And an example of that, I guess, is maybe the Tudor Black Bay uh, heritage collection. You know, it's slab-sided cases of the stuff of legend. What do you think about that, David, though? Because you you kind of are often in support of these chunkier watches that I think are just unnecessarily thick. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you bring up the Black Bay because that was one I, I think I actually mentioned in the article where I just thought it was a bit of a, it's a bit of a group thing. Like it's an easy opinion to have in watch circles. Like, you know, people are talking about Black Bay, you just say, oh, it's too thick. And I guess you think it gets you some cred with whoever you're talking to. Um. You know, maybe it's that I am larger than I actually, or I think I'm larger than I actually am. So I think these big watches look good on me and they don't. Uh, that that could be why I gravitate towards them. Uh, the other thing um, that I think is that, you know, because of my background as an engineer, I like things overbuilt. And so kind of subconsciously, I think extra thickness means extra durability. Uh, and then the other thing, I guess, and this is maybe more philosophical to the hobby, uh, it's, I just, you know, I, I have strong opinions about things in watches. Like that's why I have fun doing this with you is because I like discussing them. But at the same time, it's like, you know, and I, this is going to be sacrilegious to anyone that actually makes watches, but like, is a millimeter really worth getting worked up over? You know, like, I don't think there is such a thing as a, a perfect watch, right? So if a watch like the Black Bay comes out where I'm like, oh, that looks awesome. It comes from a great brand name. The specs are good. It looks nice. Uh, is that one millimeter or two millimeters going to make a difference, right? Like, is it, does it matter that it's only 90% perfect in my mind as opposed to 100% perfect? Uh, I, I don't think so, you know? So I, I see what you're saying. Uh, but I think also it just comes down to having a little bit of, yeah, you know, flexibility with regards to your watch taste. I think, I think you have to look at the good, look at the bad weigh it out and then decide what you like rather than as you were saying having a, a blinker view and saying you know thick bad thin good 
Jesus, this is why we get you on the show. You're provoking me already. And this is supposed to be a regular Q&A. Okay, right. Where to start with that lot? Okay, let's start at the back and work back to the front. I don't think you ever have to compromise okay, or should have to compromise. Like when you say, oh yeah, well, the good and the bad and the blah, blah, blah. There are so many watches out there with so many minute differences between them and requiring you to spend so much money on them to get them on your wrist. I don't think that there is ever a point where you should just shrug and say, oh, yeah, this watch would be perfect, but I absolutely hate the handset and I, I can't stand looking at it, but I'm going to buy it anyway because it's the closest thing to perfect. Don't buy the watch. Like if, if it's not good enough in some level, if it's some tangible reason why you don't like it or something that annoys you about it, don't buy the watch. It's just not worth it. Like there are enough good watches out there and maybe you have to go way, way, way off the beaten track to find the piece that doesn't annoy you in any way. And maybe it's not in the price point you were going for. Perhaps it's even in a lower price point because it's from a brand nobody's ever heard of or a brand that's defunct and no longer makes watches. That's totally fine. But why settle for anything? that isn't satisfactory. I don't, so I don't ascribe to, to that at all. I don't think it's about broadening your horizons to the point at which you're accepting things you don't like. Um, the group think comment, fair point. There's an awful lot of that that goes on. Unfortunately, in the case of the Black Bay, and I'm talking about the original re-release of it or the original release of it, should I say, not the updated version, it was 41 millimeters wide and 14.8 millimeters thick. According to admittedly my own self-created visual impact index before you even start factoring in the thickness of the bezel on that watch which makes it look even more boxy that's two clear millimeters thicker than it should be at a 41 millimeter thickness the ideal thickness according to my equation for a 41 millimeter wide watch would be 12.8125 millimeters that is almost exactly two millimeters on the nose thicker and then to your other point, does a millimeter really matter? I mean, I'm rolling up my sleeves, David. I'm coming for you. <laughs> Not only does a millimeter matter, a fraction of a millimeter can matter in certain ways. And what are we doing if we don't believe the perfect watch is possible? I, I think that's probably pie in the sky because there's certainly a level of subjectivity in that that would always make it impossible for everyone to be in unanimous agreement. But surely there is a perfect watch for you, right? And surely there is a perfect watch for me. Surely it is possible to combine elements in a way, elements we've seen before, some we may not have seen before, but combine them in the way we've never seen before to end up with something that is truly, truly special and worth our money. And I think obviously personal preference comes into this. So I was being a little facetious, but I think it might just mean that, you know, I don't mind thick watches as much as the next guy. And I think that's just a subjective thing. But let's talk about that Black Bay for a second, right? The original one. So if I'm not mistaken, it was uh, Davide Chirato that came up with that design, who is now the uh, CEO at uh, Bremont. So obviously, you know, had a huge impact with the Black Bay. You know, did the thickness clearly did not stop Black Bays from being sold. He's gone on to, to bigger and better things. But the comment that was made about that original Black Bay is the same one that was made about the Black Bay Pro. And people will say like, why can't you make it thinner like the Sub? Why can't you make it thinner like the Explorer 2? And again, going back to design decisions, maybe, and I'm just completely, you know, this is me spitballing off the top of my head, but maybe Rolex said, no, you cannot make that watch as thin as our watches because we don't want you cannibalizing our market. Now we could talk about is Tudor demographic really the same as Rolex's? Okay, we could talk about that. But maybe it was actually a decision to say, we're going to make it a little bit thicker than the Rolex models so that we are not 
totally stepping on each other's toes, right? And so I think that comes down to the whole, again, thickness bad, thinness good. Even though I may think that looking at, at the thickness of a watch in millimeter is not a huge deal, that's my subjective opinion. But when you're looking at the CAD design and you have to machine these things, it's a huge, huge decision to make. And someone made that decision for a reason. And so I think that if one kind of looks at it that way, um, it, it sort of takes away some of the edge off the opinion that people might have. Yeah, that's a fair point. That's an interesting one to suggest that Rolex might have said, okay, we need your watches to be deliberately inferior as well as coming from a lesser brand name. I'm not going to rule out the possibility that something along those lines was said. What are you saying? Like make your watches less attractive or less wearable so that people have like tangible reasons to step up to a Rolex rather than just the status associated reasons. Is that kind of what you say? Kind of. But at the same time, like, I guess I'd send that back to you and say like, you know, the Davide Cerato, Cerato, who is a respected member of the watch design community. I don't know him personally, but that's my impression. I'm assuming he had final sign-off on this, right? So he had a reason for doing this. So it might be that Rolex told him something. It might be that was his own preference, right? But I guess all I can say is that someone whose job it is to design watches and who's made a career out of it signed off on it. And so who am I to say it is categorically bad? It might not be to my taste, but it's certainly not an unfounded decision, if that makes sense. Okay, well, I don't think that the fact that somebody who signed, like, with a reputation like Chirato's signed off on it necessarily suggests Rolex didn't lean on him to do what you insinuated they might have lent on him to do. True. Yeah. Why would he do it? I mean, money talks. If if he's got that mega machine behind him and he kind of thinks, well, this is my design, I maybe would want to slim it down a little bit in an ideal world, but it's going to sell. It's going to blow this brand up. It's going to be a phenomenon in the modern era. My name is going to be attached to it. It's close enough. I could see why he would do it. I mean, a lot of us in the industry look up to figures like Davida and think they're beyond repute, that they're gods of the industry, like Eric Chavou, Sylvain Berneron, you know, these modern classic designers, uh, Fabrizio Buonamassa, you know, these guys, Adrian Bookman, you name them, most of them have been on the Real Time Show. It's amazing actually to list them all off now like that. And you look at them and you think, wow, um, I could never be in a position like you. But actually, although that's a healthy way to look at people, I think, and respect them, it's not true. Like I've been in plenty of positions, high up positions in companies where there's a decision that I may not 100% agree with, but it's my responsibility to either sign off on that decision for the good of a company and move it forward in a direction that is most in alignment with the wishes of the board members and my own, or to dig my heels in the sand and say, no, I'm going to fall on my sword because I believe wholeheartedly in the importance of shaving two millimeters off this Tudor Black Bay, and I'm going to lose my job with the Rolex group as it's becoming, and someone else will walk in there and go, yeah, I don't care if it's two millimeters thicker. Fine, let it be two millimeters thicker. What do I care? I see the point of strategy. We do want to push people towards Rolex. Yeah, so I can imagine that both things could be true, that it's been signed off by somebody the industry respects, but also because they understand they're just part of an ecosystem and nobody's bigger than that machine. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, geez, uh, we could clearly spend a ton of time talking about this, but, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be the Rolex Illuminati, you know, making such a decision. I mean, just off the top of my head, uh, I think the Black Bay is is a pretty close contender for the most mainstream watch nerd, if that makes sense. 
And so maybe it just came down to the fact that, um, you know, Tudor wanted to sell a bunch of these. It was their reintroduction to the market. And market data said that the average watch buyer, right? So not you, not me, does like thicker watches. You know, they like wrist presents. They want to show people they bought a new watch. They want it to be flashy, et cetera. And so maybe, you know, Rolex and Tudor were just following the the market data, right? So um, yeah, I just think, again, that's a case. And, and it clearly, let, let's be clear, it's not a technical thing because the Tudor is thicker than the Rolex Submariner and has a third less water resistance, right? So it's not a technical thing at this point. And so, yeah, all, all I'm saying is that there, there was a lot of things that go into this final decision that makes a watch, quote, thick or thin. So I had a point. And I'm going to come back to the point I had, but you just gave me another thought. I mean, I'd be very surprised if that Tudor Black Bay didn't stand up to the same depths as the Rolex, to be quite frank. I, I doubt very much that there is the stated difference between them in terms of water resistance. And I think that that is, again, just a deliberate ploy to position one above the other. But I'd love to do a side-by-side comparison and see which blew up first. You'd imagine that Tudor would, event- would go first. It can't be quite as well-machined as the Rolex, but is it? One third less. I think we have a little more monetization to go before we try that. But uh, yeah, I mean, if you look at the black bits, two hundred. Uh, the Submariner is three hundred, right? So I'm, I'm going off of um, the Rolex as the comparison here. But yeah, to your point, I mean, I think they're tested. I think twenty five percent more uh, is kind of the tested level, and then who knows what the the factor of safety is after that. So yeah, they're both extremely robust. But just looking at the numbers, that's uh, that's that's what I'm seeing. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, like you say, the Rolex could make 400. We we pretty much know that for sure because of the excessive testing procedures. But I wouldn't be surprised if they could both make it to five without blowing up. And I mean that in all seriousness. I don't know if you could sort of say, oh, we could push them as far as 500 plus 25%, so 625, and then have them marked as five. I'm not saying that. But I think that in real terms, they can both go a lot further than it says on the dial. Anyway, that my actual point that I want to make pertain to the commercial desirability of a thick watch. So you mentioned it's possible that Rolex, Tudor, whatever, leaned on the data they had from the marketplace that suggested people preferred a thicker watch. Okay, I can believe that. I also can believe that when you poll people in that broader mainstream, they don't really know what the thicknesses mean. What is not necessary, and actually, to be honest, the question is, what are people complaining about? People like me and the group thinkers alongside me that say, oh, Tudor Black Bay is too thick. Do they mean that 14.8 millimeters is too thick for a watch categorically? Because I mean it's too thick for a watch that's 41 millimeters wide. But more importantly, I mean it looks too thick because the case band is a massive slab of unfinished, unchamfered, metal that stares back at you when you look down at your wrist. That's what annoys me. I was talking to Sylvain Bernaran about the importance of angles in reducing visual thickness of a case middle when there are components within the watch or tasks for which the watch must be built to overcome that require a level of thickness. And he was talking specifically about a very high horology complication that meant the movement was quite thick in a particular watch that he had worked on in the past. And the issue was when you cased it up, given the watch's diameter because of the size of the movement he was working on, it was an absolute 
Bayamoth. It was a lump on the wrist. And so what he did was he skimmed down the, the middle of the watch, the case band. He thinned it all the way out. And then he replaced the majority of what had been metal on the case band with a very beautifully sweeping sapphire to try and reduce the visual weight of the watch on the wrist. And he did the same thing on the dial side. He replaced a lot of the bezel and a lot of the architecture that would have otherwise held the crystal in place with just more crystal. And when I look at the side of a Tudor Black Bay, in fact, you can see a, a nice uh, a nice side-by-side -side comparison if you go on watchgecko.com slash blogs slash magazine slash the Tudor Black Bay review. Side-by-side -side comparison of a Tudor Black Bay with a Rolex Submariner. And you can just see immediately the elegance of the styling of a Rolex and the Tudor and the thickness between the two. It's not massive difference of these two pieces that have been chosen. It's just the way that that thickness is distributed throughout the design of the watch. Like the Rolex case back is much bigger. It's much deeper. It's much steeper chamfered than the Tudor one. That makes a difference. You can reduce the visual weight of a watch without reducing its thickness. So if people want a thick watch on their wrist because the marketplace tells Rolex that's what they want, fine. But it doesn't need to be shaped like a brick. That's all I'm saying. I'm out. Fair enough. I'll just say, look, if anyone wants to get where I'm going, since we're talking Tudor, ask him what he thinks about the Tudor Ranger and uh, sit back. Fucking hell, David. Honestly, this is supposed to be... <laughs> this is a family show. Oh, actually, you know, by the way, I must commend you for referencing Mark Cho's article because amazingly within it, and I, I've started to get the suspicion over the last few years from talking to people in the real world, but never having had the data or seen this article before me, I wasn't sure it was true, that the average wrist size is much smaller than we think it is. So pretty much everybody I know reckons they have a small wrist. And I frequently reference my smaller than average 6.5 inch or 16.5 centimeter wrist as if it's an anomaly. But according to Cho's diagram, which shows the obvious bell curve David was referencing, 6.5 inches is actually the most common wrist size among polled individuals. And that was 26% of respondents. And then either side of that, there was 13% was 6.75, 23% was 7 and then on the on the lower side, 9% was 6.25, 11% was 6, but nearly all respondents were between the 6 and 7.5 bracket. That is remarkable. That is true. So the smaller wrist is not the smaller wrist. It is the average wrist. So where does your wrist sit, David? Uh, you know, last time I measured, I think I was somewhere around 7 inches. So I don't know off the top of my head what that is. Uh, maybe it's just all of the croissants I've been eating here have been contributing to that. But uh yeah, I think I'm I'm probably around that, which, you know, if I'm above average, as the data says, that that might be also why I just, I don't, the thickness of a watch doesn't bother me so much. But, you know, Rob, you made a really good point, And this is, we haven't really talked about it, but it, it, it goes back to the commercial aspect of these decisions. You know, Mark Cho, the Armory has another outpost, I think in New York, hopefully I'm not wrong, but it started in Hong Kong, right? And I don't think I'm being controversial here in saying that you know, if you look at morphologies of people around the world, you know, people in the Far East have smaller wrist sizes than people in the West. I think that is, it's known and it's known by watch companies and it plays into how they make watches and what types of watches sell, right? So if you look at Longines, which I understand is very popular in Asia, they tend to make thinner watches. If you look at uh, Omega, which maybe sells more in the West, they tend to make thicker watches, right? So I would love to know the demographic breakdown of people answering that survey. And uh, again, this is just one more aspect that goes into this question of, is a watch 
too thick. Well, it could just be that it's targeted at a demographic that is not you, if that makes sense. So uh, yeah, again, just a- another thing to pile on to this seemingly simple question of thick versus thin. Excellent addition. And you are absolutely right. The Armory is based in Tribeca for anyone that wants to visit it in New York. That's Triangle Below Canal Street. I don't know if anyone really realizes that's what it stands for. I didn't know that. I, I learned something. <laughs> I Well, I... I used to visit them there because Nomos is stopped in the Armory. And um, in those days, it was one of only a couple of brands they carried. I know they've done special editions with Moser and C in the past, and they're really beautiful. And I would definitely recommend anybody that's into fine tailoring or finding beautiful accessories to go with your outfits to pay the Armory in New York, in Tribeca, a visit. Okay, let's move on to... It's not really a triangle, by the way. It's more like a quadrilateral, they say, but triangle below Canal Street sounds better. Let's move on to question number three, shall we? Now, this one came in from Jason. I've been itching to answer this. It's quite quite a recently received question, actually. So we bumped it up the list because I was so interested in hearing your thoughts on it. Jason says, and he used the contact form, by the way, so anyone that wants to get in touch can do that by going to www.therealtime.show. Jason says, I wanted to know your thoughts regarding watches that use proprietary straps. This might be particularly pertinent to Rob, who has a connection with Arcanaut. Personally, every time I see a watch like this that has a rubber strap unique only to that watch, I immediately start worrying about the longevity and my future ability to source a replacement if I need one down the line. What happens if the brand ceases to exist or discontinues the line entirely? Is it reasonable to expect replacement parts from entry mid-level group brands for long-forgotten watches? Needless to say, this worry has stopped at least three purchases that I remember. Am I worrying about nothing, or is this a legitimate concern? Do you want to start with this, or do you want me to kick it off? I think you should kick it off, Rob, because you have some work experience that I don't know if everyone is aware of, but I think you have a very unique vantage point to, to talk about service availability of parts. Very good. So off the top, in terms of parts availability, even for watches, let's just start there, like for movements, I mean. So I believe the rule that Omega abides by, at least they did when I was at the bench, is that they must have parts on stock for any watch created for a minimum of 30 years after discontinuation. So that's quite a long time. And to Jason's pointed question, can you expect that from entry mid-level group brands? For long forgotten watches. Group brands, yes. I think Hamilton, Tissot, Longines, Satina, Baumercier, Mido, whoever you want to point at. Yes, absolutely. You can expect that from them. For independent brands, such as Arcanaut, very good question. We are, of course, mindful of this. Every brand must be mindful of making proprietary straps as they are designing watches. For some, The proprietary strap is the crowning glory of watch design. I personally am of the belief that a lot of the classic watches in the industry are classics, probably as much, if not more so, for their bracelets than it is for their watch heads. And I mean that because the bracelet is responsible for about 80% of the wearing comfort because it touches more of your wrist. The way that it moves on your wrist is important. The way it catches light and wears... I mean, over time, does it pick up scratches? Does it not? Does it look good with them? How are the finishes distributed across the strap to create visual engagement and also not leave it open to too much real-world damage? Those are important factors. They really matter. And so 
there's obviously an impetus for watch designers to lean towards proprietary components when they're trying to separate themselves from the masses in a very overcrowded marketplace. However, you do find people who look keenly for versatility and for getting the most bang for their buck possible. People who focus mostly on watches that could be described as strap monsters, which is probably most black dial Seiko dive watches, many things from brands like Orient or even something neutral in the dial like a Young Hands or an affordable Tissot, something that has a standard lug width, so either 18, 20, or perhaps max 22 millimeters, so that you can buy all manner of interesting straps and different materials and different colors for different occasions. You can use aftermarket bracelets, things like Forstner's. That's a real concern sometimes when you're designing the watch and you know full well that you are immediately boxing yourself out of that community. You're boxing yourself out of the very entry level of watch buyers who want to buy one watch and multiple accessories to get the most wearability out of it. But that comes down to understanding your customer. So in the case of Arcanaut, although we definitely have lost customers because we have proprietary straps and we've definitely lost customers because we don't yet have a bracelet option. The majority of our customers are kind of beyond that point in their purchasing considerations because they are not first-time buyers. Very, very few Arcanaut customers have bought the Arcanaut Arc 2 as their first watch. And so generally, it goes to people that have gone all the way through the collecting journey, reached the, the mountaintop, where they have all the Pateks, the APs, the Zeniths, the Omegas, the Ulis Nadans, they've got all the classics, and they now want something that's new and funky and crazy. And for them, the four or $5,000 retail price of an Arcanaut is not something to worry about. More to the point, we're quite generous with our straps. They retail at about 180 bucks. But if you keep an eye out every so often throughout the year, there's special codes that you can enter and get a couple of free straps thrown in when you buy an Arcanaut. And the reason why we do this is because we know full well it matters to people who are concerned. There's eight different strap colors for an Arcanaut, but even when we offer people a free strap or two, depending on the time of year, vast majority of them take a spare black or a spare dark blue, depending on what the watch was delivered on. So they have a backup. I must say, we test our rubber straps extensively, and we've never been able to break one. They're very thick. They're very durable. But obviously, people are going to be concerned because when you make a watch, you want it to be a lifelong purchase and something you can wear. It's certainly something that people should bear in mind when they're buying a watch, but only if they're buying a watch for a specific reason. If you want to buy an art piece, something a bit more experimental or artisanal like an Arcanaut, then that's a different consideration entirely. What I will say is this. I've thought about the potential disaster of Arcanaut's collapse. I don't believe it's going to happen. We've had a wonderful 2023, ended with a bang. 2024 has started very, very positively. And we're looking forward to a really wonderful year where we build even further and expand the collection, try new things, engage a community, get out there maybe a little less than we did last year on the road, but certainly out there digitally showing people what we can do and making new pieces and model platforms in the future. But should the company at any point in its future collapse, I would make it my personal goal as a last effort, as a thank you to all of the people that have kept the Arcanaut story rolling thus far to create an adapter that would mean that the watch head could easily be worn on any 
kind of strap. And I do just mean something super simple. Like you could imagine like a loop that could just attach to the screws that hold the strap in place now that you could thread a NATO through. So would it be ideal? No. But could you still wear your watch? Yes. Would it be a little something that could be sent out to every customer that ever backed the brand that wouldn't send us further into bankruptcy if that ever befell us? Yeah, probably. I think that you can't expect small brands that try something wacky and exciting and ambitious to provide you with proprietary components 10 or 15 years after the brand has collapsed if the brand should be unfortunate enough to collapse. But you can maybe hope that if the brand owners are decent folk, they would find a workable halfway house solution should they ever be facing extinction. So as a lot I said there, David, sorry for rambling on, but please pick up the mic and tell me what you think about that. No, no, it's it's all good. And I was just making some mental notes of um, points I wanted to cover in addition to and in complement of what you just said. I'll start with saying that uh, the question to me sounds like it's mostly referring to integrated bracelet watches because when we talk about pr- proprietary, real is that proprietary shape. And I'll just say from a, a personal point of view, I think I've kind of realized that, as you said, Rob, you know, an iconic bracelet is almost more difficult and kind of more of an achievement than an iconic watch head. And so to that point, I think I've realized that anything that does have an iconic bracelet associated with it, that's enough for me. So you, we've all talked about the Rolex, the Oyster bracelet, the Jubilee bracelet. I'm not really interested in a rubber strap for any of those watches. Um, if I had an Audemars Piguet World Loop, same, I'd want the bracelet. I've got a Cartier Santos on. Cartier provides uh, accessory, uh, one accessory leather strap with that model, and I have no interest in wearing it. The bracelet is for me. So off the bat, I'll say that I, I don't have a ton of interest in swapping out the metal bracelet for a rubber bracelet. Now, then we get to the issue of, okay, the rubber bracelet is the only one available. In the case of, for example, Arcanaut, uh, you know, pending a future bracelet release from uh, from you and the rest of the team. And so on that point, I've got a, a couple things that uh, hopefully will kind of help settle any fears that someone has if, if they're similar uh, to, to these. The first is that, you know, rubber is a lot more resistant than people think it is. Uh, there's obviously different kinds, but think of the stresses rubber has to undergo on car tires. I used to work for a company that made oil tools. Uh, you know, rubber would be introduced into wells, very hot, high pressure situations. And clearly it's not the same rubber going into watch straps, but you know, in, in 2024 manufacturing is uh, sophisticated testing methods are sophisticated. And so I think people would be surprised at just how resilient rubber actually is. Now, of course you have to you know, keep it away from caustic chemicals, keep it away from, you know, baking in the sunlight. That's all common sense stuff. But the first thing I'll say is, um, yeah, rubber is a lot more resistant than people think it is. Also, if it is a concern that the company might go bankrupt, you know, in 5, 10, 15 years, here's what I would suggest, right? Like, think of how long you typically own a watch for and think of how often you wear that given watch. So Rob, like you said, an Arcanaut uh, might be someone's second, third, or fourth watch purchase. So it probably doesn't get rotated in uh, as much as someone who has just one watch, right? But if you find that you wear a watch in a certain fashion that wears down a rubber strap in five years, and it may be even more of that, but let's just say five years, and the average time you keep a watch before selling it on or getting tired of it is 20, and I'm just using these numbers to make the math easy, well, you buy four straps and you're, and you're covered, right? And maybe some extra ones, one or two extra just to be sure, but you kind of build that into the purchase up front, build a strap buffer, 
and uh, and you should be good to go. And fine, there's an extra cost there, but at least you don't have to say this watch is great, but I won't buy it because of this reason. And the last thing I'll say, Rob, before turning it over to you is that, um, you know, some companies, not all, uh, I don't know what Arcanaut does, but they will contract with established uh, factories to keep parts in stock. So if you're an independent brand and you're having your watch built, for example, by a third party, I know this happens relatively frequently in Switzerland, uh, they will have a contract to ensure part availability, uh, you know, years or decades down the line. So you don't have necessarily the scale of a swatch group, but you can leverage a little bit of someone's size if, if you don't have that off the bat. We haven't faced this situation where the discussion has been necessary because luckily, since I've been involved with the brand at least, and not as a direct result of it in, in every sense, but you know we, we're on an upward curve. Things are going well. We're growing. We're excited about the future. We have ambitions to release new models, new model platforms, and everything's going well. But I am pretty convinced if we ever heard the death knell sounding, we would probably do whatever we could to have a massive bunch of straps made. Like, let's say by the time, if that ever happens, heaven forbid it should, but by the time that came to pass, let's say it's another 20 years. And let's say that by that point, we've sold 500 watches a year for 20 years. So that's 10,000 watches. I would say that we would probably do our best to buy 20,000 black straps. You know, we have the mold. The unit cost of having a strap made, especially at 20,000, is pretty low. We could do that, take the hit ourselves financially, and then just have the strap stored. Or we could have the mold available, or we could make the mold available on open source, right? There's something nobody's talking about. Like we could, we could say the website of, <laughs> it's so depressing talking about Arcanaut in these contexts, but let's, let's say website of defunct independent brand becomes basically like a memorial page to it. And you could make files available. You know, the, well, what use are they to you now? You know, put them on there. Let people download the bits that they could maybe 3D print themselves at home. For goodness sake, the technology is getting so much better so quickly. There's even desktop CNC machines now. You could probably say, oh, look, my uh, case back for my Chapek. Do you remember Chapek, that brand that accidentally like blew itself up in... 2073 remember that 100 years ago wow look they put the files online so you can mill your own case back and laser engrave your own serial number which will be automatically registered into the memorial banks of this brand that lives on beyond itself why couldn't that happen you could buy a stock gasket like offline basically or the 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 files the machining files if you're really diligent as somebody who has enjoyed bringing their vision to life and unfortunately has to close down operations for whatever reason, why not redesign it so that a lot of the watch can be repaired with aftermarket parts? You know, you can make a watch run with basically any movement if you've got the right size movement holder within the case and the right hand height and hand width and whatnot. It can be done. For example, I once acquired an old Hamilton electronic watch and the electronic movement, this is the pre-quartz electronic phase, was completely fried. It was irreparable. It was totally dead. So I ripped it out and I put a small quartz module in. I made a casing ring out of epoxy. I found uh, I found hands. No, actually, the I took the original hands. I I just I filed them out a little bit, and so they were wider, so they fit onto the modern quartz movement. And I popped it in there, and lo and behold, it works. It's a watch. It can be worn. It can be enjoyed. So that is something. And the last thing I would say on this subject which I kind of touched on by accident because I went down the whole like open source printing or machining of your own components, which I actually 
now I've said it, I think is a pretty cool idea and something that perhaps smaller brands should promise to offer future customers in case the brand should fail. And I will suggest it to Arcanaut, just in case anyone's wondering if I'm willing to put the business policies where my mouth is. How about remembering anything that has been made can be remade? Now, I am aware of the complexities of certain components, especially Arcanaut straps, because they are extremely complicated. The fitting to get the integration next to the case is very precise. So even your average excellent strap maker, like the strap tailor, for example, would probably not be able to make that strap themselves. But I tell you what, they could make something that would fit it. They could make you a bund strap to which your Arcanaut could attach. So there are alternatives. Where there's a will, there's a way. If you want to wear a watch, you can find somebody that can help get it back on your wrist. Great points, especially the 3D printing your own parts. It uh, just made me think of an interesting business model, which maybe exists somewhere, but I'm not aware of it, of uh, a company. like There's several watch brands that have gone bankrupt. You know, off the top of my head, uh, Romain Jerome, and that's not, not Romain Gautier. That's the, the maker of the Pikachu and the Mario watches. Uh, I think HYT and Autlots went bankrupt for a while, but they've been resurrected since. But the point is, if you had some service, some third-party service provider, companies would pay a fee or subscribe or whatever it is, but the job of this third-party subscriber would be to provide parts and service for, as you said, Rob, like watch brands, not in perpetuity, but a very long time uh, after they they go away. It'd be a very niche market. Uh, hard to fulfill that demand, but uh, yeah, could be interesting. Right. Let's move on to another question. I think we have time for one more, but I'm very much enjoying how in-depth we're diving. Do we have any more strap-focused questions since we're on a bit of a roll? We have a strap question or an entrepreneurship question, Rob. I'll let, uh, I'll let you pick. Oh, let's do the strap question and the entrepreneurship question can wait for another episode because it might go on a little further. So how about you read out this question from Aaron? AliExpress straps, not watches. So this is from uh, Aaron via Instagram DM. Uh, you can also check out our Instagram uh, webpage at therealtime.show in addition to the contact form Rob listed, but via that Instagram page, we were asked, strap code FKM Tropic 4999 US dollars, identical from AE 1099. R10 leather backed sail cloth, $133, same from AE 14.98. So I'm assuming this is a, a seller on AliExpress, uh, or it is AliExpress, sorry. Uh, and he's got many more comparisons out there. So Era then goes on to ask, should I feel bad for buying from China? Are these USA companies buying these from China and reselling them? Lots of questions come up the more you look at it. Strap prices in the US seem ridiculous, even on leather. Of course, I would understand if you didn't mention brand names to avoid bashing anybody. Okay, so really what what, uh, what Aaron's asking here is, you know, I'm, I'm looking at strap prices from overseas. And actually, Artem is Australian. Uh, but there's obviously examples from around the world. And he's saying, well, I'm seeing similar examples, maybe identical ones. On AliExpress, and the markup looks looks huge. Uh, what's what's the deal here, Rob? Do you, do you mind if I start this one? Go ahead, man. Go ahead. Okay, so I'm actually asking because I had a similar similar experience. So I recently acquired a Blancpain, and the Blancpain came on a black deploy black leather strap with the deployant buckle. And I like the deployant, but a black leather strap, crocodile strap, that is just not my style. I don't really wear a ton of black. Uh, 
And I really wanted the steel bracelet. The trouble is, I think the Belfast steel bracelet costs like 1500 bucks. And so I was thinking, okay, like, what can I do to tide myself over until I can work that into the budget? And so R10 actually uh, makes what I understand, I've never actually handled one, but very high quality uh, sailcloth straps. So it's similar actually to what Blancpain sells with his 50 Fathoms, but apparently a lot more supple and certainly a lot cheaper than what Blancpain sells them for. And they've just come out with a model that is what they call a loopless deployant strap. So the idea is it's like, it looks like an Omega basically. You kind of tuck the deployant in. There's no keeper, nothing like that. Uh, but it was still kind of expensive. And I was like, well, okay, like I, I just want to see could I be satisfied with a strap option? Because I don't want to buy Blancpain's $400 option and then be like, ah, but I really should just put that towards the bracelet. So I went on AliExpress and lo and behold, I found an option that looked the same. It turns out it didn't actually fit on the buckle side. That was my fault. It had nothing to do with the construction, but I paid $12 to have it shipped to France and it came in less than two weeks. And from what I could tell, it was a very high quality product. And you can go down the list of brands and uh, you will find certainly that uh, there are straps that look very similar to OEM straps. Now, it gets a little bit complicated because uh, as we know, well, first thing, let's just get out of the way. This perception that something made in in China has to be of bad quality. I I disagree with that. Uh, I think that just because you get bad quality in China does not mean that there aren't people doing very good work. and people who aren't very proud of their work there. I think it's it's unfair to craftsmen in that part of the world. And let's be honest, like I live in France, we make great things here, but we make crap as well. Like I think that's just universal. So let's just take that off the table. But then let's also accept that margins are lower and costs are lower. Uh, I think it is fair to say that there are companies who are buying straps from the factory and marking them up. And I have... Nothing really against that. I think that's just a part of doing business. It, it happens. And if the market will bear the price they're asking for and the strap is of good quality, then I think fair enough. And if you have the um, sort of wherewithal and the knowledge to go search on AliExpress for something that is similar or the same for less money, then you should go ahead and do that. That's totally fine. Of course, you would be kind of not getting the benefits of buying locally, so faster shipping time, maybe better customer service, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But you should feel free to do that. The other thing I'll say, Rob, before I turn it over to you is that uh, I'm not at all saying that every Swiss brand sources from China. As a matter of fact, if you look at some of the larger brands like uh, Omega, for example, uh, I have heard anecdotally that they have a contracted provider in Switzerland. So just because you have a rubber strap that is not made by the brand does not mean that it is not made in some place where manufacturing is, you know, more prestigious, we'll say, than it is in in the Far East. So I think a lot to say there. Uh, Rob, what do you have to what do you have to add to that? I think you hit the nail on the head with what you're paying for when you buy these clearly resold Asian-made straps from a non-Asian-based supplier, and that's shipping times and customer service. They're the top two things. Because to be totally frank, very many straps of the kind we're discussing are exactly the same, often made in exactly the same factories. It's really, really, really difficult to stop your designs, your machining files from finding their way around the whole Chinese Asian network. It's really tough. 
People will steal things without a second thought. European trademarks, intellectual property laws, aren't that great when it comes to fighting this kind of theft in Asia. I mean, take a look at one of the more popular strap styles of recent years, the rubber tropic strap, okay? I've got one on my Sherpa. I've had one on my Echo Nutra. I've seen them on Baltics I've had in for review. And I've bought them aftermarket from places like Watch Gecko, for example. It's the same strap, pretty much down to the micron. Now, it would be naive to think it's just a coincidence that every single brand has designed exactly the same strap. What's more likely is that there's one accepted mold style for it that can perhaps have a brand name added to the back and they're being pressed out by the thousands in Asia. And so when you're talking about quality for a strap like that, then unless there is an explicit made in Europe from a special kind of rubber like say FKM, then expect that you're getting the same thing as you would maybe find from a reseller. Obviously, you can get bitten by manufacturers who are just complete shysters who use terrible materials and will give you the same style strap in a less resistant material for the same price. But by and large, don't be surprised that these are the same things. Like sailcloth straps, how hard is it to make? Really, there's nothing unique or proprietary about them. I like, therefore, going for European makers, hand makers of straps, like the strap tailor, like Gentile Handmade. No, these are good guys. I like affordable aftermarket bracelets from Forstner, reasonably priced, you know, 125 bucks. Got a, got a new bracelet. In some cases, they can fit multiple lug widths, like the Comfit mesh ones that I love so much. That's a great thing to buy. So yeah, um, I think that the key point is if you want peace of mind, that's what you're paying for. Not everything that you pay for in watchmaking. In fact, to be honest, Perhaps most of the things you pay for in watchmaking are not about the material product themselves. They can be about customer services or prestige or design or intellectual advancement of the industry. You know, when someone sees a watch, like an independent brand and says, oh, this 5,000 euro watch would be great at 500 euros. It's like they don't realize they're making themselves sound thick, but it's like, come on, there's more than goes into the creation of any product than the cost of its raw materials like that's not how business works that's not how a house works you don't get to buy a house for the cost of the bricks and the carpet like the builders the architects these people also need to be paid the same is true of making a watch and so when you go to like a swiss company or a german company or a uk or a us company and you buy from them you get all of that extra stuff in there as well if you want to circumnavigate that, totally fine. Doesn't matter to the industry en masse because there are plenty of people that will continue to buy from those more reputable sources. But yeah, you're probably going to get something pretty similar. That's all I have to say on that matter. At the end of the day, buyer beware or buyer preferences, just uh, follow what you like, stay in your budget and uh, you know, enjoy wearing the watches strapped to. That's the most important thing. There you go. What a good note to end on. So David, thanks for taking the hot seat in Alon's absence. I'm sure that you'll be coming back to have another round with me and hopefully one with Alon as well when I'm off 
on my jollies somewhere. In the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can do so by contacting us via Instagram. I'm there at R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S. David can be contacted at D-A-V-A-U-C-H-E-R. Alon, when he returns, will be contacted by A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H. Alon and I have email addresses. That's Rob or Alon at therealtime.show. We have our own dedicated Instagram account at therealtime.show. And of course, the website where you can access the contact form, www.therealtime.show. We'll be back soon with more high quality watch content. Until then, stay safe and keep on ticking. <laughs>